0: Let me get a little feedback from you. you know, an old old teacher, so I've got to listen to the students. So we've done away with the fill-in-the-blanks. How many people are, have quit the Bible study because we've got away with the fill-in-the-blanks? They're, they're not here. Not here. They've already gone. Okay. I don't hear the clicks, you know, at the end. You get that last blank in. Click, 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 click. So I know that's just annoyed all the OCD people. Is the... Uh, Is the outline working okay for you? Uh, uh, If any other suggestions of how learning would go better with you, that'd be great, but we will uh, proceed. Different what? Bigger print on what? That? On that? Yeah, we'll take that under advisement. I don't think they make anything bigger than that, but we'll... uh, (coughs) We'll work on that. Hey, what? i got so many good ideas coming at me. What's the man in the blue holding up this doing? What is that? What did you say? Bigger print on this. Got it. We can do that. Good. Anything else? More oatmeal. More eggs. Whatever. All right. Keep those cards and letters coming. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Let's read God's Word. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if we were if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow God's Word, let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we pause before you and our sanctified imaginations get you firmly in mind. There you are in the heavenlies, the very throne of God, praying for us. Your body's still scarred. You are still in our flesh praying for us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us in a way that only the Holy Spirit can by looking at these words on this page and having our minds catapulted into the heavenlies, and there to be able to see you with our mind's eye and realize that what you're doing for us is actually happening right now in a real place, and someday we will see you with our own eyes. As many here as know Christ as personal Lord and Savior, may there not be a man who leaves this place today without giving his life to Jesus. And please, Lord, help us in whatever we face today that we would have our eyes focused on that end to which you are taking us. Open your word to us. In Jesus' name we pray. God's men said, amen. A few months before I moved here, uh, middle of the night, my daughter, our 14-year-old, came running into our bedroom and she said, it's raining in my room, it's raining, raining in my room. Stumble out of bed, you know how you are, you go in, and before we turn the lights on, I step in the room, and sure enough, it's like an ocean spray hitting me in the face from every direction. Turn the light on, and there's a, there's a drip coming through onto her ceiling fan, and the ceiling fan's slinging it. Not only is the ceiling covered, but now all the walls are covered as well. I, uh, we, we, uh, the pan on the air conditioner was overflowing, you know, and we got that uh, settled and enough to go to bed at night and have a a friend in the church who was a builder and he had renovated this, this house for us and I called him over and, well, actually I called the HVAC people over first and you know how that goes. Well, you know, um, I've got uh, bad news and worse news. It's never good news and bad news. I've got bad news and worse news. You know, bad news is you've got water coming through your ceiling. No no, no, no surprise. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's worth the visit right there. Water coming through your ceiling. Worst news is it's coming from your air conditioner. I got that. Okay, then there's even worse news. It's this little pump or whatever. And uh, it's going to be this much, and then we replace that. And then the worst worst news was that that didn't work It turned out to be the whole system and the whole system is in the attic of a of a of a of a three-story house so uh, I called my friend the bill I got this you know astronomical figure for what it would cost and the labor and so forth I called my builder friend and I, I told him my woe story and he said uh, George will you just let me handle it I said well sure I just let your handle. He said, just, just go out of town. Just leave. <laughs> All right, we did. We went went over to, went to a baseball game. He called me and said, can you stay a little longer? <clears throat> and then, can you stay just a little bit longer than that? When you get back, everything will be fine. And uh, he replaced the air conditioner for less than half the price it was getting bid for. He cut a ginormous hole in to hoist this thing up and got it all. And but, then, But he said, I just, want it all, I just want it all right for you before you come back home. When you get back home, you turn the key, you come in, you go to the bedroom, and the air conditioner will be, everything will be just right. And that's the way it was. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see what had happened in there. I didn't want to see it. You know, I'd have to dismantle the whole house and put the air conditioner in and put it back together, something like that. And what we've been learning in these last several, seven chapters is what we needed. And in some ways, it's bad news, bad news, worse news, worse news, worse news. You're a sinner. Well, it's even worse than that. It's even worse than that. It's even worse than it's not only are you a sinner and in need of salvation, you need a priest. You have a priest, they're no good. They die. They have to offer sacrifices for themselves. You have a way to worship God, but guess what? That's not working either. It's not going to last forever. That's why you've got to keep slaughtering these animals year after year after year. This is what you need. Seven chapters we've been told what we need. And in the eighth chapter, we're told this is the main point. See it? Now, this is the point. This is the point. We have such a high priest. That's the center of the book. There's more to study, but this is the the point. Everything you need, bad news, worse news, and worse news. You've just gotten bad, bad news of just how much you and I need, and now we know we have it. Everything we need found in Jesus Christ who is providing it now, too, he is constantly providing our salvation. <clears throat> what we need, what we have, chapter 8. Here's the proposition that I've already changed this morning. It's not what's on your page but, uh, or on the board. Here's, what, here's the proposition, the new proposition. Because Jesus is the priest of the true tabernacle, that's the point I want to make. That's the point that chapter 8 is making. Because Christ is the priest of the true tabernacle. We must trust his ministry for us and heaven is perfect. The rest of it is the same. But I want to emphasize in the first line because Jesus is the priest of the true tabernacle. We must trust him. I'm going to give you the four points uh, and, uh, and then we'll work through them. Each one. First point will be we have such a high priest. Because we have such a high priest, we must trust his sacrifice. Number two, because he is set up by God, because the heavenly tabernacle is set up by God, we must trust his intercession. We must trust his sacrifice. Point number one, trust his intercession because it's set up by God. Number three, uh, He has made the perfect self-sacrifice for us, so we trust Him for our future. And then number four, verses five and six, we'll, we'll look at those superior promises, which mean that we must trust the proofs, the process of His sanctification. Point number one, verse number one. We have such... Quote, unquote, a high priest. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Uh, Here, uh, the the author is at a point of climax. He is at a point of exclamation. Here is what we we have needed for these Since the since the fall of Adam, and as we learned, and we'll learn at the end since before the fall of Adam, we have needed this kind of salvation. And now we have it in this so great salvation, this such a high priest. And he is the perfect priest for several reasons. Just a little bit of review. He is the right man. i want to just put all of this up there at once. You're coming. It's coming. It's on its way. It's on its way. It's called the resurrection, but uh, we're going <clears> to. <throat> I feel your pain. That's why I'm looking at my page like this. <clears throat> well, just hang with me. I'll tell you what it says. We have the right man, right man. He's the high priest. He is the one we've learned is perfect. He's the one who is totally righteous. We've learned he is the man. He is the God man. We have the right man. We have him in the right position. We're told he's at the right hand of God. Now, it's interesting, this, this, uh, this idea of the throne of God. I think I've given passages up there um, that you can't read, but they revelation. Revelation sixteen and psalm sixty two the throne of God in revelation we're told it talks about the throne of God and that Jesus is on the throne it's a It's an interesting idea the The, 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 the throne has two seats on it now of course we know that the, that God the Father the son and the Holy Spirit are The same, same as substance, equal in power and glory, the Trinity, one in three, three in one. But there's no hint, in other words, that Christ is anything less than God, that Jesus is anything less than God the Father, that He is ruling and reigning. But here is where it becomes really comforting. Some of you were a little bit, I I probably didn't express this very well last time when I said that... that the body of Jesus is not everywhere at the same time. I did not mean that Christ is not everywhere at the same time. Christ is everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent because, of course, he's God. But the, his, he added to himself a human body. Now, when he added to himself a human body, he didn't shrink his infinity into the human body, he added the human body to him. And here's what's going to be unbelievably wonderful when we get to heaven. We will go to a throne room, and we will know that God is on the throne, but we'll never see God. God is invisible. No man has seen him, nor can they see him. But we will see Jesus. Jesus will be in a body. Jesus will be on the throne. And when we see Jesus on the throne, we know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are on the throne. If we walked into the throne room and still couldn't see anything, it'd be a little disconcerting, wouldn't it? But God has accommodated himself to us not only to provide the incarnation for us in our salvation on earth... He has continued and will into eternity accommodate himself to comfort us by always having the right man on the throne. High priest in the right position. He's in the right excuse me, right posture. He's seated. He's seated. Now it says several things to us. He's at the right hand. That means that's the place of honor, authority doesn't mean that he's less. It's the place of prominence. And he's seated on the throne because his work is finished. Remember, we're, we're working with this imagery of, of Christ as a priest. And so in the Old Testament, you had a tabernacle, temple <clears throat> with, um, with priests. And the priests were constantly running around, constantly working. One piece of furniture that's never mentioned in the temple is a chair. There were no chairs in the temple because the priests could never sit down. Their work was never finished. They met you at the gate. They took your animal. They slit its throat. They drag it up. They, they, uh, they toss it on the, on the uh, altar. They set it on fire. Then they carry the blood here and there, and they distribute the elements. And they go. It's just constant work to be done. Jesus is seated because it's finished. It's finished. He's not running around saying, now I got I to cover that for you. You mean I've got more to do? It's finished. Once for all, the writer of the Hebrews is, is uh, fond of saying, he provided a sacrifice that is once for all satisfactory. Christ is your Savior. You've put your sins on him. You've asked him for his righteousness in response. He, it's finished. Your sins are paid for. Number two, so you trust that sacrifice. That sacrifice is all sufficient. Number two, he's set up by God. This tabernacle in heaven is set up By God. Uh, And if it's set up by God, that means you must trust His intercession for you. Sacrifice is settled. Now, what's He doing? He's praying for you. He's not making any more sacrifices. He's praying for you. Praying for every one of us. Five bleeding wounds He bears. Remember that hymn we sang? Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They kindly plead for me. He's at the right hand of the Father constantly saying, Father, grant this. Holy Spirit, accomplish that. Now, look at verse 2, what the author says about this holy place. He is such a high priest for these other reasons, right hand of the Father, right position, Uh, right man. He is also a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. The Lord has set this up, not man. Let me get this image in front of you that some of you found interesting uh, last week when I talked about the mercy seat. The mercy seat, just for review, is that Little golden box, about three feet long, that uh, was in the holy of holies. There was a lot of fighting over the over the ark of the covenant in the in the in the Old Testament uh, because it was the, it represented the presence of God. It was also, by the way, just for just to fill out your your understanding of Scripture, the, the ark of the covenant was also the repository for the for the the scriptures, as they were written, now this isn't up there don't 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 look up there for that it's not on your page either, but just this is free of charge. so as prophets would write the scriptures, they would be a, for a pro someone to be a prophet in the old testament he had to, he had to give some predictive prophecy <clears throat> and uh he would he would give that prophecy and then Uh, it had to come true before anyone would accept that what he had written was the Word of God. So predictive prophecy, the virgin will be with child and, um, you you know, you're going to be led into exile, you're going to return from exile, whatever the prophecy was. When the prophecy was fulfilled, then the people would say, ah, that man is written, what he's written is the Word of God, and so they would roll up that scroll Isaiah, they roll up the scroll of Habakkuk, they roll up the scroll of Micah, and they say, Ah, oh, he's proven, proven by his prophecy, and it would go into the Ark of the Covenant. And so, how do we know what the books of the Old Testament were? How do we know what books are in and what books are out? Because only the books that were in the Ark of the Covenant are the books of the Old Testament, and those are the books we have. New Testament also, those writing writing apostles had to be confirmed by their doing of miracles or prophesying, seeing the risen Christ, and when they were, then they were confirmed that what they wrote was the Word of God. That's how we got our Bible. That's how we got the books that we have in the Bible. So that Ark of the Covenant, that repository of God's Word, it's a moving Bible. It's a portable Bible and included the Ten Commandments. And, and then we talked about the, the Day of Atonement when, when the, one of the the, uh, la- the goats were killed Then that blood was taken. It was poured over the mercy seat. There was a lid on top of that Ark of the Covenant. And the lid had two angels reaching toward each other with their wings like this, and it formed a chair. You might say it was a throne. And he would cover, the high priest would cover that throne with blood. And the image was as a holy God would look down at the way his people related to the Word of God, then he could only see them through the blood. Of course, they were were always sinning. Of course, they didn't keep the Word of God perfectly. They broke the commandments. So the only way he could have fellowship with them was by looking through the blood that blood covered the throne and called it the throne or the seat of mercy. Now, just think about how nasty blood is. Uh, if you've uh, killed a deer and you take it to the processor in, the, in the, you know, the wee hours of the morning or late at night, uh, maybe you like that smell, but I've never liked that smell. You've got these deer hanging everywhere. The blood's dripping and splashing on your feet and so forth. Some of it's coagulated. It's kind they've of, they've always got the, the heat running in there too just to make it even better. And, and uh, it's a putrid smell. I once visited one of the, the pioneer fathers of our church in Augusta. He's a great man of faith. And um, he was a very dignified man, but he was very, very sick when I visited him. And um, he had soiled himself, and uh, uh, really bad, and um, he had been that way, obviously, for a long time. Well, I wanted to visit with him, a dear brother. He wanted to visit with me. He was humiliated, uh, and uh, I was uncomfortable. We were both uncomfortable, but we wanted to visit each other. So to visit with each other meant he had to endure his humiliation, and I had to endure the discomfort. That's the image in the Old Testament, too. The the temple was not a sweet smelling place. The temple was one like one huge deer processing plant or or um, a, c- a cattle processing plant. Smelled awful. And as the people would come in to commune with God, they had to their their the humiliation of their sin filled the temple. You getting it with me? Can you imagine that? Everybody, it just stinks. it stinks because we all stink. And some of us uh, some of us have, have committed larger sins than others they were, they were taught and so we've brought in bigger animals. We spill more blood, stinks even more. And God, the God of beauty, had to endure the stench. and he made a way to have a communion, but it was uncomfortable for him and humiliating for us. You know the good news of heaven? The altar is spotless. There's no stench. There's no blood. The wounds are, they wounds. There's evidence that they're blood, but the wounds are healed. The son sits on the throne. He sits on the throne which has become our mercy seat. So, again, let's walk into the throne room of God in heaven. First thing we notice is there's no smell. Second thing, we look at the altar and we see there's nothing, there's no animal on it. It's absolutely clean. The altar is the place we learn in, I haven't gotten to it yet, but in Revelation 8 is the place where The prayers of God's people come and springboard into God's ear. It's absolutely clean, spotless. No sacrifice needed to atone for it to get there. What we see then is our spotless Lamb of God, the Lord King Jesus. And we commune with God without any discomfort on God's part without any humiliation, humiliating stench on our part. Is that good news? We, we can trust him for his intercession. He, we trust him that he is making prayers for us that are perfectly acceptable to God <clears throat> because the sacrifice has been paid. That's where I'm meant to get to. I want you to turn to one page. Um, i got to make sure I don't get on too many rabbit trails and... Run out of time. We've got fun. we We've got an hour and a half left, right? <laughs> <clears throat> would Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 8? I want you to see something that I think will bless your hearts too. Revelation chapter 8. While well, we've got this, this image of the throne of God in front of us, <clears throat> look at this beginning. At Revelation is the last book in the Bible in case you... Uh, Looking for that, Revelation 8, verses 1 through 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal. Now, we're already told in Revelation this Lamb is seated on the throne of God. It's Christ, of course. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints of the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Here's what's happening. Here's what's happening not just in this passage. Here's what's happening right now. When you pray, your prayers ascend to God. They come to this altar, and they rise no longer as stinking sacrifices. They rise as sweet-smelling incense in the nostrils of God, and they're placed in This golden censer, golden plate. Gold in Revelation represents perfection. It's the gold standard. The the prayers come up through the golden altar. They're accepted because Christ has paid the sacrifice. They're placed in the golden plate as that which is acceptable to God and then the lamb takes them takes your prayers and he hurls them back at the earth through his angels and he accomplishes his will you thought of your prayers that way have you have you have you thought of your prayers not just as lord get me through but lord change the world lord do miracles it's why he gives us this imagery to create sanctified imaginations where we say, I'm going to pray this, it's going up, I don't have to, I don't have to, to become worthy for my prayers to be accepted, the lamb is on the throne. He takes those prayers, he, he smells them, he, he, he glories in them just like you do when, you're, when your beloved child comes to you, you love their presence and you, You're eager to answer their requests. He smells that and he says, Oh, I love the smell of my children's prayers and their conversation with me. And here, Gabriel, Michael, take this. Go get this done. We trust him for his sacrifice because he is the right high priest. We trust him in his intercession. Because the altar and everything necessary to make it right have been set and has been set up by God himself and has been perfected by the perfect sacrifice, even Jesus. Number three, here's another reason to trust him. Because he has made the perfect self-sacrifice. There's nothing else to offer. He has offered himself. Oh, I know. I hadn't clicked, have I? I'm an irresponsible clicker. Set up by God. Self sacrifice. <clears throat> There's nothing else to offer because remember, the and some of this is review, uh, the, the the old testament priest had to offer something for himself first because he also was a sinner. If he tried to do work on your behalf and didn't offer a sacrifice for his own sin, he'd be struck dead. Christ, the perfect priest, has nothing, nothing else to offer. He has offered himself. He has nothing else to offer for you either. He's already offered everything necessary for your and my salvation. We can approach him. We can approach him with total confidence. Let me say something uh, before I forget it. Look over at chapter 9, verse 24 of uh, back to Hebrews. I want to set up this last point because I think this can be a little bit challenging to us. Chapter 9, verse 24 says, Christ has entered not into Holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Look down through this passage with me back in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if we were on Earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. He has it; he didn't need to. He, he didn't need to offer anything else. If he came back and entered into the old, into the into the tabernacle temple service, there would be nothing for him to do, because he wouldn't have an offering to offer for himself. He wouldn't have an offering to offer for anybody else. He'd say, "My work is complete. I don't have anything to do." He's impressing on us the finality. But he's also telling us in, chapter, in this passage in chapter 9 what he goes on to say in verse 5. They serve, verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. This can be a little bit tough for us to understand, but listen very carefully. God identifies the place in heaven where Christ is doing his work for us as a tabernacle, as a tent, as a temple, not because there was a tabernacle, a tent, a temple on earth, and he said, you know, I'm just going to compare this to what you have on earth. It's the other way around. God establishes, established a tabernacle in heaven, a real place where Jesus is, where Jesus is really doing our, the, the, the redemptive work that we need. And God called that the tabernacle. And then God said, now I want my people to have an image on earth of what's up here, so this is the way I want you to build it. And he gives the, the, um, the instructions in, in uh, Exodus. Exodus chapter 26, 27, Numbers 8. He gives instructions for how he wants this tabernacle built. And it is a replica of of what is actually in heaven. The earthly tabernacle was a replica of what is actually in heaven. There is actually a place where Jesus is. There's actually a place where Jesus is making intercession for you. There is actually a place where our prayers come and they're acted on there is actually a place where Jesus speaks to the Father and he says, remember my sacrifices, remember my, remember my scars for them. Father, do your will. The tabernacle on earth has been replaced by the church, the church at worship. And when we gather on Sundays, we are Replicating what is happening in heaven There is actually a place Where those who have died And and trusting in Christ Our friends, loved ones Who have gone on to heaven There is actually a place where they are And they are worshipping Around the throne Jesus is really there The saints are really there I don't really know what form they're in, but they are there, and when we worship, it's as if we plug into a signal that's already playing, and on the Lord's Day, we plug into that signal, and there is a very imperfect replica of what's happening in heaven happening on earth. There's a call to worship, worship the lamb, and we respond. There's a reminder that sins have been paid for. There's an invitation to pray. There's an invitation to hear the promises and instruction of the word of God. There is singing. There's praying. There is sweet reunion. What we're doing here, in other words, is not more real than what is happening in heaven. We have been hindered and handicapped by uh, Platonic philosophy. This idea that that the spiritual, the the, uh, the nebulous, is more real than the objective, and so we tend to think that um, <clears throat> that when we go to heaven, it's just going to be you know kind of nebulous and everybody floating around and and maybe hovering around with some angel, some angel wings or something, it's just, it's, it, just seems, it just seems something that is, it is totally unlike who we are and what we experience here. But that's not the way it will be. What we will experience in a new heaven and a new earth is more real than what we experience right now. Uh, I don't think anybody has done a better job of trying to capture, and and here, you know, I'm talking about a whole lot more than I understand because I haven't been there, but uh, creative people like C.S. Lewis have done uh, a great job of trying to capture the enhanced, the perfected reality of heaven. So you you C.S. Lewis who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, he talks about the Shadowlands. Living in the Shadowlands before you get to Narnia. And the Shadowlands is that's the Earth. The Earth is just is is, uh, is a is, is an experience of shadows that is real as it seems to us, as high definition as it seems to us as tactile and as real and bony and fleshy and, and hard and stable and gravitational as this seems to be. Lewis says in another place in the book called The Great Divorce, which is his book on heaven, he, he, one of the figures says, you know, in heaven things are much solider than they are here in Britain. They're more they're solider and in fact uh, as one person gets off of the of the bus that takes them from from uh, uh, earth or hell to heaven, they say something like this uh, that walking proved to be difficult, the grass was hard as diamonds to my unsubstantiated feet so when they first got there, they're still in their human body. They're used to the experiencing Earth, but when they step onto the grass with their bare feet, it, they can hardly walk because the grass is even is more real, is solider than the than the than the grass on Earth. the 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 heavens were of eye piercing blue. It took a while to get adjusted. This place that Christ has gone to prepare for you and for me, this place exists right now. He is there. He is there as the perfect sacrifice. He has paid the absolute perfect price so you can trust it. It's done once for all. He is in a place with a clean altar so you can trust that his prayers for you are effectual, and He's bringing them about. He is in the process. You can trust Him for the process, because He is bringing you along and and um, and uh, and making you what you need to be for heaven. And the day will come when you experience heaven, and it will it will be this. You will be more human than you've ever been before. The creation will be more real than it's ever been before. And those occasions that you've had when you have felt a special closeness to God through Christ and you felt like all is right in the world, that will be true of your relationship continually. Now, how can you believe that? just going to close with this. Look at the last verse, verse 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. What are those better promises? The better promise is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise, that every promise he makes to you in Scripture is yes and amen in him. Do you realize that your position in Christ is better than Adam's position before he fell? God's grace is such that He replaces what we lost with what is infinitely better than the original. That's how good God is. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Grace upon grace. And so here's what was true of Adam. Adam's put in the garden. He doesn't, he's not a sinner yet. He has a sin. He's given everything. Everything is perfect. Everything is working in, in perfect harmony. He's given, he said, uh, uh, you, you don't have to do, you know, his Bible was very short. It only had one line. It said, don't eat of the tree. And that's the one thing. Adam and Eve wandered to do, and then the fall came. And so sometimes we think, well, boy, wouldn't it be great if if God could restore us to where Adam was before the fall, but that'll never happen. We'll never be as good as Adam before the fall because we'll always have this remembrance of the sins we've committed, but that's not true. You are now, if Christ is your Savior, in a better place than Adam was ever before the fall. Why? Because your lives are united to Christ. They are absolutely, infallibly stable. Yes, you sin. But His work of sanctification in you is such that He is enabling you more and more to die to sin and live unto righteousness and that process is not going to fail until he completes it at your death and he's going to make you unable to sin. A position, a condition that Adam never had. As soon as Adam was was placed in the garden. He was able to sin. That's why he sinned. You will be transformed into a, into a, a, a situation in which you, it will be impossible for you to sin. And you will be perfectly conformed to Jesus Christ, a, a, a situation that Adam never experienced before the fall. You have all the more reason to hope, he says, because your promises, your, what is given to you, your salvation is built on better promises. Namely, your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.